I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. It's amazing just how small our world feels sometimes and how connected we can be to people absolutely everywhere. Today's guest, Jane Figueredo, was born in Malawi and raised in Zimbabwe, Africa, and eventually she found her way over to the United States to dive and then transitioned into coaching at the University of Houston. She coached many international divers here before ultimately going on to coach Russian and British divers to eight Olympic medals, two of them gold. So in a way, it feels like Jane alone seems to connect the entire world of diving altogether. She shares with us her story of going to the Olympics first as an athlete and competing for a completely different country than all of those we've already talked about. And she doesn't shy away from how tough her experience competing in the Olympic Games actually was. Jane walks us through how she kept finding herself in the right place at the right time as she went from collegiate coach to Olympic coach to Olympic medalist coach. Jane tells us how she figured out how to attract great athletes to her school, even without a great facility or college town how she said yes to opportunities that led her to coaching multiple Olympic teams, and how she grew as a coach when she took a chance on a young, talented diver and moved across the world yet again. Jane is full of wisdom and valuable experience, so listen up to her wild adventure that wrote her remarkable career. Before we jump into the episode, though, I want to tell you a quick story. Last fall, I was cleaning out my garage and I came across a bunch of old diving shirts that I had. Now, these just weren't regular meat t-shirts. These were fun and funny and several quite fierce. I remember I used to feel more inspired and motivated just wearing them to practice or a meet. It was nothing more than a t-shirt, but to me, it was like I could put on my own little armor of confidence. When I saw these shirts in my garage, I missed that feeling. So I started creating designs that would inspire and encourage you. Then I opened an online shop called Laura Wilkinson Designs. Now the shop is full of motivational apparel and accessories. I want to give you inspiration that you can wear on the outside while lifting your confidence on the inside. Go check out the shop, whether it's for you or someone you know that could use a little confidence. From the littlest dreamers to the tough mothers, there is something for everyone. And we even have a special pursuit collection that was created to honor all our dedicated pursuit peeps out there that love this show. Go to laurawilkinson.com slash shop to check it out. That's laurawilkinson.com slash shop. And finally, if you'd like to support this podcast directly, you can buy me a cup of coffee at laurawilkinson.com slash coffee. Thank you. I love coffee. That's laurawilkinson.com slash coffee. All right. I believe there's gold in your future. So let's dive on into this episode. Jane Figueredo, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I am so excited to finally have you on here. Thanks, Laura. So happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And for all of you listening, Jane is so dedicated. She is actually doing this interview from her car while her athletes are working out in the gym inside. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. And I wouldn't miss anything with you, Laura. Yeah, (laughs) you're so sweet. Well, okay, Jane, most people know you as Tom Daly's coach, but 
I met you way back in the day when I first started diving. And I think you were still a fairly new coach at the University of Houston back then. But you had your whole own life as an athlete and an Olympian before your phenomenal coaching career. So will you please share your personal diving journey with us? Yeah, of course. Um, Obviously, I was uh, born and raised in Southern Africa. And we had, a, believe it or not, a deep history of diving. Most of the divers that ever came out of Zimbabwe all dove in the States on scholarships. So as a kid, once I started seeing the older athletes like Dave Parrington, Debbie Hill, Antoinette Wilkin, once, once we realized that our journey might include something outside of Africa, we were all pretty pumped and and very dedicated to move on to that journey, whatever, you know, we didn't really have any idea what that looked like. So the older athletes left, came to the States, two of them to University of Houston, and then three and then four and then five, we all came to U of H. So it was sort of a snowball effect where somebody came and they came back and told the coach, hey, we got somebody else. And sort of that's that's how that all happened. So that's how I ended up in Houston. Um, I remember my teammate being in Houston. She told Terry Falkenberry, who was the coach at Houston at the time, hey, I got a, my best mate, also diver. Maybe we could bring her. And so she called me and within a three-week space of time, I had my bags packed <laughs> and I was already on my way to Houston, not really asking the question of, how are my parents going to afford all of this? But, um, you know, they, they never stopped me. They never said, hey, we don't have any money. They really did whatever they could. And at times, probably in very deep desperation to afford for me to be in the States and pay for me to to continue my diving career. So I did that for four years at University of Houston. That was incredible. It really changed my life. And made me look at a a bigger world, a bigger picture. So I I did that, graduated in hotel and restaurant management because I wanted to do a degree that I could do anywhere in the world. So teaching was, yeah, teaching was sort of my passion. But at the time, you couldn't get a teaching certificate if you were a foreigner. Really? So, yeah, it, that only came in at, at a much later stage. I didn't know. So that. I had to, yeah, so I had to give up on teaching, and I took the next best thing, which I thought, okay, I can get a job anywhere in the world, in a restaurant, a hotel, a club, a resort, and that was the reason I I did hotel and restaurant management. And U of H at the time was the second best school in the country for hotel and restaurant management. Oh, nice. Yeah. So yeah, I graduated, and then I decided that uh, Dave Parrington, who was my coach at that time after Terry had uh, moved to the Woodlands, uh, Dave started coaching me and then he moved on to University of Tennessee and uh, there wasn't a coach. And so I, the swim coach said, hey, Jane, do you want a coach? And I was like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. (laughs) And so that's where I started coaching, but I already had another job. I was an operations manager in a restaurant chain called Allegro out of Rice Village. So I was doing both jobs for a couple of years, working in the restaurant from six to two and then racing over to U of H to coach uh, college and age group till about eight or nine at night. (laughs) So it was, you know, coaches, this is our passion. So we do, you know, we do crazy things. We work like uh, the devil to try to, 
get where we want to go. Um, and obviously, back then, there wasn't really a lot of pay for diving coaches. So I, that's, that was mainly the reason why I had to work two jobs. And then plus the age group program brought in income, which I had to do. Well, you're, you're, you're skipping over something very important. You were an athlete at the 84 Games. <laughs> T- tell, us, tell us about that experience. Yeah, so obviously in that interim period of when I was at Houston, my family moved out of Zimbabwe and moved to South Africa because there was a war going on and, and uh, my brothers were going to be called up to the army and my father just had a very strong stance um, because the, the war, we weren't going to win the war, so he just didn't really see, he didn't want his kids to be killed in the army, so he... So they left and they moved to South Africa. So that's how I came about uh, competing for Portugal because once they moved from Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe said, well, she doesn't live here anymore. Her family don't live here. So we can't select her. That's basically how that happened. So my father reached out to the Portuguese embassy and the Portuguese Olympic Committee because I had had a Portuguese passport since I was born. So Portugal came back and said, oh, we would love to have a diver. We, we've never had any divers, so we'll support Jane. So that's how I came about to compete for Portugal. That's so crazy. Yeah, so it is crazy. Um, and as you know, if you look at the Winter Olympics, Summer Olympics, and you've heard certainly a lot of those kids are competing for countries through their parents' heritage. So it's definitely become sort of a much more popular thing. Back when I was diving, I probably didn't think about that. And I always thought I would compete. You're a trendsetter, Jane. (laughs) Oh, I don't know about that. but (laughs) It made sense. And and I was uh, doing really well at U of H. So I went out to, they selected me to compete at the Olympics. I represented Portugal. That was incredible. The Olympics, as you know, Laura, my first experience, oh my God, it was it was horrifying. It was so scary. Just intimidating. Yeah, I just remember when the whistle blew and they back then we, we didn't just do optionals. We were doing like requireds and optionals. And I remember once they blew the whistle, my legs were like, I, I couldn't walk. <laughs> I don't know if you ever experienced that. Did you experience that? Oh, yeah. That's overwhelming nerves. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, so you know that experience. And obviously, when you do your first one, unlike Matty Lee, who goes in his first one and and wins the gold medal like you, (laughs) it's very rare to see that, as you know. But um, in Tom's case, you know, four Olympics later, he finally achieves his dreams. But I think the first one, it's very rare for somebody to come in and, and do as well as you did and Matty. So it speaks a lot to your guys' um, talent and and your dedication and commitment. So we haven't seen that very often in our sports. But yeah, so the Olympics were certainly quite terrifying. And then I I soon thereafter retired from from diving because I really wanted a coach. One and done, huh? (laughs) One and done, yeah. And then the opportunity at Houston opened up. So I didn't quite see how I was going to keep training with no money. Um, My family, you know, didn't have the funds for me to carry on. And 
back in those days, there were no real post-Olympic sort of opportunities to stay and train at your your alma mater or go somewhere else and train without having to pay probably substantial amounts of money. So yeah, so that obviously my Olympic experience was was really amazing, but obviously much more successful as a coach. And that's been my journey in coaching. Well, and I love it. And so you first started at U of H and then, I mean, pretty quickly, I feel like you started to have this international presence in your divers there at, at U of H. Um, and, and it was cool. I mean, cause you have that international flair. I mean, you're, you, you've been kind of everywhere and, and you know, everyone, but how did that kind of happen? Because it seemed like you rarely had Americans on your team, but you would bring these phenomenal international divers in all the time. Yeah. And I think I mentioned to you this before, and for me, University of Houston in those days was a very tough school to recruit to. It wasn't that I wasn't trying. It just... Um, such a lovely pool. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we had a, a really bad pool back in those days. I know. That's what I was joking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we, yeah. And I don't know. Did you ever dive in that pool other than age group? I didn't, but I've I've seen lots of videos from it. And I was like, all right. It was like what dark and I think one one meter and one three meter yes. on the Duraflex yeah. stands. Yeah. Yeah. And 12 feet deep and, you know, the likes of Kelly Jenkins and Tom, um, uh, uh, Matt, uh, Scott Doney and all of those kids that Dover's age group is all trained in that grungy <laughs> pool. But, um, you know, it's a cliche, but where there's a will, there's a way. So because Houston was sort of set in the third ward, we were a big city university with not really a college campus atmosphere. Our pool was, you know, horrendous. And foreign kids, as you know, they don't ask too many questions. The The priority for them is scholarship. How much money do you have? So most of the international kids, we could recruit them without even them visiting. In fact, I had nobody ever visit. I would offer a full ride and they would come. Wow. Yeah. So that started with that trend which I just carried on with that. And so did Dave before me and so did Terry before him. All the kids that they recruited were international kids. And then probably when we arrived on campus, we're all like, oh my God, is that the pool? (laughs) (laughs) By that time, it was too late. By that time, we already had a scholarship. Like I've I've sucked you in. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Only a mild bait and switch. (laughs) Yeah, and to be honest, It was only when U of H got that really nice new pool was I able then to really start recruiting kids more in the U.S., like Rachel Gidelson, uh, Stephanie, um, the Canadian kids. We got some great Canadian kids, but still the majority of our kids were were foreigners. And really, uh, most of that was they were reaching out to me saying, hey, I've heard from my coach that they want me to come and dive with you blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, I've got scholarships. So boom, it was a very easy transaction. And most of the foreign kids were great students as well. So we never we never really had to suffer trying to get them in. One time that I really had to pretty much go to the president of the university was when I recruited Yulia because her English language um, oh, was, I remember that. Uh, very, very limited. 
Very limited. Because they have to pass a certain so test, she, right? Yeah, the, the TOEFL, the test of English language. So her score was okay, but it, it still wasn't enough. And because I sort of sold the idea that she could be a NCAA champion immediately, our academic team went straight to the president of the university and, you know, we had to obviously get letters to back it up and so forth. She had great grades in school, so that was a plus. And then, of course, we were going to have to obviously work on the language. But Yulia was such a great academic person like Vera and all the international kids before her that it wasn't very long and she was already on it. So within the first six months, her English skills just were, were amazing. So do, do you think that the the drive with the international students, because they so want this college opportunity that's not available really anywhere else, nobody else has an NCAA type system. So is that what kind of drives them? And I guess they're, they're going to probably be more motivated because they are coming here to get an education. I'm guessing that's my assumption. Is that kind of what you've seen? Absolutely. You're absolutely 100% correct. And that's not to say, you know, we're not throwing all the domestic kids right. under the bus because they're, they're also very, very dedicated. But there is certainly an extra drive because you got to understand a lot of them, they live with their parents for many years into their uh, adult life. So they don't have those same opportunities that American kids have. So yes, the drive is certainly there to try to better themselves in a different way, like you said, um, just the lifestyle to try to have a better life, to be able to come somewhere where they won't be living with their parents for the rest of their lives because they won't have an income to provide for a family. So there was definitely a humongous push, um, like you said. So I would agree with you 100% that there, there was definitely an external factor that contributed to why they were so keen to come. That's cool. Um, yes. And I did not mean to throw the domestic kids, the American kids under the bus there. That was just a <laughs> yes. Thank you for explaining that so well. Now, how did you kind of get connected with Alexi and become like the head Russian diving coach? I mean, you've already got this obviously international flair. And on top of that, you then become like the head Russian diving coach. How did that play out? That was an, sort of an interesting connection because we, as you remember, and I, I can't remember exactly if you were back already in the woodlands or you were still up at Texas and you were coming home on summers. But if you remember correctly, the Russian team, Alexei, already knew Kenny. So they were coming out to the woodlands for camps. Yeah, they came out before the 96 Olympics, too. I remember that. It was before I went to school. Yeah, we were just like in awe watching this Russian Olympic team training every day. It was pretty cool. Yeah, so I remember because we were in that really nice venue back in the early days in Houston, um, <laughs> I, I, I had recruited some a Mexican girl. You remember her, Zul Amazan. So we worked a thing out with Kenny where we would come out there on certain days of the week and come and do some tower. And we would do that in the summer as well. So that's when I met Alexi because I met him there and we were training there. And so that's, and then I saw Vera and I think Yulia was still young. And so was Lashko and then Salton and all of those guys. So we just started and he had not a great sort of skill for the language, but he certainly learned very quickly English. So we 
we sort of started a, a friendship and relationship and I would see them every time we came out. And then he invited me to go and like have meals with them and sort of discuss the American system and how did it work. And that's how it eventually started. And then at that time I had a British girl and uh, Great Britain were having some issues with the coaching staff and um, I was training with her in the Woodlands and Great Britain, uh, they had some serious issues with their, their one coach and so they weren't able to select him. So the British, the British team was looking for a coach just last minute to help them coach their Olympic team in 96. So I was at the Olympic trials judging. I remember this. And the head of swimming from Great Britain, because I had been traveling with my British girls, so they knew me. I had traveled with them to several international competitions, but never been sort of the official British coach, but I had been Olivia's coach. And so there was obviously a, a big issue. And he called me and he said, listen, um, our head coach, we were not allowed to select him. There's been some criminal prosecution that's taken place. Can you coach the Olympic team at Atlanta? And I was like, what did the divers think? Because that was like a month that, away, right? Yeah, less than a month away. <laughs> and I said, I, I'll only consider it. You need to talk to the divers first because that was Tony Alley, Bob Morgan, Leslie Ward, Haley Allen, Leon Taylor. And there was five of them and, and they were amazing. Obviously, they were top in the world. And I said, I can't really consider it until you've talked to them because I don't think this would be very fair. I they don't know me from a bar of soap other than the little bit that they've traveled with me. So they contacted them. I contacted them and they were adamant that they wanted somebody neutral. And um, I just happened to be sort of in a, a great place at just the right moment. That's the way I see it. You know, there's certain things you are going along doing and then all of a sudden an opportunity presents itself. And hope to do it for the right is all about the athletes. So being in the right place at the right time and, and an opportunity was there to help them out. And I was free. I mean, I wasn't coaching anybody at the Olympics. That's how that whole international thing came about. And that was my first relationship with Great Britain, but also um, with Alexi, because then I went on to Atlanta and of course they were all there. And it was at the Olympics that um, I became really fr good friends with Vera. And, and probably in hindsight, she had already started thinking about she would like to get out of Russia and try to make a better life for herself. And so after the Olympics were over, she said to me, Matt Scoggin has been recruiting me and I want to move to the States. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> okay, but why why can't you come to Houston? <laughs> but obviously, she was very, very loyal and, and she knew Matt from her diving days. And she had already decided that that's where she was going to go. And so she was reaching out to me to help her sort of navigate taking the English test. I want to come to America right away. Can I come stay with you and your family? Can I come train while I go to English school? And of course, in order to help her, 
it was obvious by based on NC2A rules, right? You can't you can't help anybody. So that's because she had already committed to Texas. That was the reason I was able to extend a helping hand. So she came to Houston pretty soon thereafter. Came and lived with my husband and I. We were living obviously right by U of H. Came in and stayed with us from about September to November, December. Went to English school. Trained with me for three or four months, and that started the whole Russian connection. It was really bizarre, but and I think Vera understood that in order for her to get into Texas, she was going to have to go to English school because none of them had any English skills. Yeah, and and like you mentioned with Yulia, I mean Vera and Vera, it's Vera Elena and Yulia Pakalina. For those of you listening, if you don't know who that is, just look them up. They're kind of amazing. Um, but Vera is wicked smart. I mean, she graduated, I think, with honors in uh, international business school, and she came, like you said, she was with you training from like November to December. She started in January and just you know burst on the scene at UT, um, won a bunch of NCAA's. Like she's she only had like two years, I think, there because um, I think she had some she had some credits that transferred, I think, from her school in Moscow. But yeah, wicked smart, amazing. We we became friends because we were at UT at the same time for a couple of years. And she was just so inspiring for me to be training alongside an Olympian as well and raise the level of my springboard because I was always trying to beat her, you know, and she would just egg me on. It was great. Um, yeah, we, we can definitely laugh more about it now. But <laughs> um, but she, like right after she graduated, she moved back down to Houston to train with you leading up to 2000, right? And is that when Yulia came down as well? No. So what happened was Yulia, because obviously she was still in Russia training with her dad. And obviously that connection is, is uh, you know, one you can't, change. I mean, we were obviously very interested in Yulia. So in order to recruit Yulia, we obviously had to be very, very above board on all the recruiting rules and make sure we we weren't doing anything where it would put us in a bad situation where we couldn't eventually get her. So what we did was they would come for training camps because they were a synchro pair. So they were able to train together. And then of course, you know, Yulia's dad was, uh-uh, Yulia's uh, uh, not coming <laughs> to America. Um, and, and rightly so. So we had to sort of just sit and wait. So what happened was they trained and then, of course, they went to Sydney, won the gold medal, and then he was like, okay, now you can have her. Um, so, <laughs> you proved yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we, you know, thank God, like I said to you, the, there's just certain things, everything sort of falls into place and the opportunities just come and you hope that they're the right time at the right place. Yeah. What was that like, though? I mean, you go in, you you kind of accidentally happened into the 96 games with Great Britain and now you're at 2000 with Russia and you guys win a gold medal. Like, what was that experience like? Yeah. Obviously, once Vera moved to Texas and started training with Matt and Matt's one of the best coaches in the world, as you know, and and I just have uh, utmost respect and I, I idolize him. I, I just love him. He's a first quality person as well as a coach. But Definitely. Um, in 98, I think Vera had decided then that she really needed to, a different coach. And she'd obviously been training with Matt and I on and off together. And I think she liked that different approach. More fun. And her coach too, Vera's coach in Russia, was an incredible technician. So not taking nothing away from him, we we got to uh, really 
enjoy the fruits of his labor, to be honest, which is uh, absolutely brilliant. But she wanted something different. So in 98, she changed coaches. And then I officially started traveling with Vera as part of the Russian uh, team. And Alexei just brought me full on, paid for me to travel with them. And Yulia at that time obviously wasn't at Houston. So then once they won the gold and Yulia could come to Houston full time, that sort of was just an amazing partnership. And then Yulia could train with Vera in Houston full time from 2000 on. And the Chinese were were a formidable pairs. You know, we were. I think we, we won in 2000 because we actually, I believe, caught them off guard. We trained exactly like the Olympic schedule, and I think they weren't diving that great at 9 o'clock in the morning. Right. Well, and Synchro was brand new. That was the first year it was ever in the Olympic Games, was in 2000. Yeah, first year. So we, and they had a new pair, right? It was Guo Jingjing and... Um, Wu Ming Sha, right? Wu Ming Sha, yeah. So they also were a brand new pair, and I think the fact that... Yulia and Vera had trained together and they were quite similar. As you know, the Russian style was quite similar and they had just the regular hurdles. So that was easier to synchronize. Whereas the Chinese pair had started doing that hop hurdle. So they were quite different. So I think we caught them sort of in the middle of them transitioning to being amazing. So, uh, yeah, so that's how the Russian system played in my favor. And then I started. The most amazing thing, as probably your listeners wouldn't know, is that we always had an agreement. I always had an agreement with Yulia's dad, because don't forget that all the Russian coaches made a living from coaching divers. I was making my living from coaching University of Houston. So if we took him out of the mix of coaching Yulia, he would basically never get a salary again. And he needed that, right, to to live. To So we always, between him and I and Yulia, we always had an agreement that I would coach Yulia during the college season and then I would help him coach her in the rest of the season. It was just so that he could continue to receive all the monies that he deserved and, and we couldn't take that away from him. And then we just became just amazing friends. And he would be like, oh, Jane, you go ahead, coach the synchro. I can't be bothered. Um, <laughs> you know, and then it, it became where, you know, he would come to the meets, but he just, you know, he just loved being there and it would make, it make him very nervous. So he would coach Julia, but then I was coaching her, pot, you know, sort of on the side. But it, it was an arrangement that, um, you know, it worked and you had to know Julia's dad as you do. He was quite an eccentric fellow. and That's a good description. <laughs> yeah, you know, he always looked like he was mad, but actually he was just passionate. Yeah, hiding behind the giant mustache too. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, one of the things that you've said, because you coached um, the Russian team from like 96 through 2012, and you said that the co- your coaching knowledge and technical experience kind of exploded when you started to visit Russia and see their training techniques and their strategies. Like, tell us about that. Like, I want to know all the things. I want to know about the experience. I want to know specifically the things that you were learning and seeing. Walk us through that. Yeah. So obviously I've felt like, and Alexi says this publicly and he's absolutely correct. I became 
a professional diving coach when I started coaching the Russians. <laughs> and that's absolutely true because my technical knowledge, what I, what I did really well was communicate and have fun. And I really tried to give them confidence and faith in their own abilities. But I absolutely would agree that in those 90s, I wouldn't say that I was a technically a gifted coach. I, that's, that's what I meant by really my technical knowledge exploded because once I started coaching Vera and Yulia, I understood they coached me on twisting technique because I would ask a lot of questions like, how come you guys twisting is so amazing? I mean, we won the gold medal with three twisters. Yeah, you could do that back then. <laughs> yeah, you could do that back then. And so I learned a lot about how do you initiate good twisting technique. And Vera was an ultimate twisting technician. And then when I would visit Russia, um, I would actually see the coaches with the young kids, like flipping them off inner tubes into a mat and actually putting their arms and legs in the right places. So a lot of their coaches that were working sort of the young juniors were actually gymnastic coaches. So their experience was very hands-on, you know, working with the kids when they're little in, in their arms and flipping them and twisting them, throwing them up in the air. That's sort of how I started learning a lot more about, hey, Vera, like when you're, when you're doing your reverse and back technique, how far do you really want to go back with your arms? How do you want to grab your arms under your legs? And just all of these different things. And then I saw dry land into a whole nother stratosphere, as you know, because in the US, we never had dry land. Nobody used dry land. Whereas the, in the Russian system, it was 80% dry land and that's where they developed their divers in Dryland. And then the other 20% was, okay, let's have a look in the pool now and let's see if we can transfer those skills. Yeah, I remember Yulia telling me, um, actually just recently, that she would do belt work, like the spotting belt work, every single day yeah. before they got in the water. And it just floored me because I was like, wow, we would do that like couple times a year. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just yeah. as really as needed, like learning something or learning a new dive, but they would do it every single day with like all of their dives. Like that just blew my mind. Absolutely true. Yeah. And I don't know if you ever asked Vera this question, but she always said that the, the Chinese and this, you got to understand she's Russian, <laughs> but the Chinese are as good as they are because the Russians taught them all their techniques and all of their strategies and all of their, because back in the early 70s and 80s, Chinese, Chinese coaches would visit Russia and the Russian coaches were teaching them all the techniques on twisting, somersaulting, dry land. So I said, yeah, is it really true? So you're saying that it's the Russians' fault that the Chinese are so good. <laughs> I said, so we all, we have all the Russians to blame for that. Um, you guys should have kept your knowledge to yourselves. But it's true. Yeah. It's true. And dry land, pit work, board work, belts. Belts were huge. Gymnastic belts. Yulia, because her dad was a gymnastic coach, she learned a lot of skills on the tumble track. Oh, really? Yeah. So he was obviously very proficient in belt work on tumble tracks because he, was, he wasn't actually a diving coach in his early coaching years. He was a gymnastics coach. I didn't know that. Yeah. 
So we, as you know, I, I even to this day, I think the U.S., we've got to get better at what we deliver in Dryland because I think that's what we've been able to do in, in, in London and, and around Team GB because Alexi walked into those programs and he developed the Dryland Centers. Yeah, well, and that's right. For the, those listening that don't know, Alexi, who we were talking about, who is the head of the Russian diving, eventually moved over and has been the head of Great Britain for quite some time now. Yeah, so he came, I believe, right after 2008. So that was his last Olympics um, was in uh, Be- Ath- no, Athens was four and Beijing in eight. And then he got the job in Great Britain. And of course, you know, he's developed them into the second best country in the world in, in diving that, that I believe. But I think you're right. Going back to your original question of just where did my knowledge come from? It was all those years of visiting and taking videos and actually sitting after practices and watching the juniors and what did the coaches do with the juniors and seeing things that I had never seen in my life. And that obviously started in 98. And ballet, that was a big one. I loved um, two days a week. They did like a, not a traditional ballet, but a, a diving ballet. Diving ballet. Yeah. So more dynamic, more quick, more explosive sort of dynamic moves that were ballet related. But so, for example, a, a good example would be a bar routine where instead of just coming up on your toes like ballerinas do, that we would be doing jumping. So they were jumping up onto their toes. So it was quite explosive. And then she was very strict. So she'd have eight or nine of them lined up on the ballet bar in front of the mirrors. And she would count, you know, ras, dva, dri, chitiri, ras, dva, dri, chitiri. And so there was this, and I, I remember it like it was yesterday, right? And she had a little stick and she would like tap them on the ankles, the knees, the butt, just to make sure they were tight and, and everything was in good posture. And I have never seen that anywhere else in the world. And and to this day, I've been trying to get that in, in London because I believe that that's something that could add to making us improve. So there were those kind of things. So there was this dynamic ballet. There was the dry land. There was belts. There was, yeah, just now look, the delivery of the information was always quite harsh. You know, it came with sort of a loud angry, what sounded like it was angry, and coaches walking out because they were mad the athletes weren't doing what they wanted. So that was, I saw a lot of that. And that was quite tough for me to to sort of see that and manage that because I had a lot of empathy for those kids, just seeing them crying when their legs were being bent in different ways. And look, you know, that's not a Western way because you know, we are obviously taught we're not going to make anybody cry and we're not going to push the boundaries to the point where athletes are on sort of that very borderline of physical abuse. And, and I mean that in a positive way, not not um, the kind of physical abuse we might be referring to in gymnastics. Or I'm talking about just pushing the envelope and making kids cry because they're hurting, their hamstrings are killing them while they're being stretched. So I spent, obviously, the the next from 98 all the way to 2012, not really 
criticizing, but just going in my own mind, like there's a better way here. There's, we can teach kids to be great without sort of pushing those kind of boundaries. And I saw that in my early years of going to Russia, but that sort of subsided later. So it could have just been that period of time, you know, 90s, where that was sort of the only way is that way. And then in the 2000s, I stopped seeing kids crying and being pushed beyond their limits. So so definitely in the 2000s, that changed a lot. That's good. Yeah. So, yeah, but that, that's sort of how my knowledge expanded. And then I was able to take that back to Houston and then, of course, into the British system. Yeah. How, how did that all play out, too? Uh, because you, when you sent me some of your notes, uh, you said Tom Daly arrived in Houston in 2013 looking for a coach. And like I didn't know. I, I always thought Alexi just pulled you in because you guys had that relationship while you were coaching with Russia. And then he moved to Great Britain. I thought he just wanted you. But was it actually from Tom? Like how how tell me the story? Uh, yes. Obviously, the initial thoughts were Alexi's. And he called me and said, you know, first of all, he asked me like, hey, Jane, I hadn't heard from him in a while. Uh, that was in 2013. And he said, hey, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm just coaching college and blah, blah, blah. Oh, would you sort of trying to lure me in? Uh, would you like to like be our translator for the Rio Olympics? And I'm like, what? Translator? translator? <laughs> just, just because I'm Portuguese doesn't mean I speak Port- Portuguese. <laughs> and then he said, okay, well, I'm running a conference. That was in September or October of 13. And he said, I'm running a conference. Can you come deliver because he would visit me in Houston every four or five months when the girls were training with me. And keep in mind, now they were retired and I'd had nastia. So he loved our weight program. He loved the American system of strength coach and going to the big weight room and you're lifting um, because the Russian system was not really like that. They were so far behind in strength and conditioning. And why that would, why would you use that for diving? Because the Russians never used that. So he said, come and deliver a strength and conditioning conference um, clinic to my diving coaches in Great Britain. And I was like, what? Okay. Well, you know, I'll come, but you know, you got to pay me because I got to miss work for a week and, you know, you need to pay my airfare, blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, okay. At this point, he hadn't told me what was really going on. So, of course, I arrive, I arrive in Great Britain to deliver this conference. And, of course, he said, okay, well, after the conference, we're going to take you down to the London Olympic pool, and Tom's going to meet us there. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, well, what's that all about? So we go down there, and I'm wearing a hard hat and – you know, Tom's there and blah, blah, blah. And maybe that happened after our first visit with Tom. That's right, it did. Because I, this was them trying to lure me to come to London at that point because I'd already said no. <laughs> so Tom came to visit me. Yeah, that must have happened end of October. Tom came to visit me. Alexia had called me and said, hey, Jane, Tom wants to come and train with you in Houston. Can he come for two weeks? And I was like, what? Uh, okay. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, have Tom call me. Um, so he said, 
Okay, well, Tom's going to call you. And it was the next day Tom called me. He said, hey, Jane, I want to come over and chat with you. Can I come train with you? And I said, sure, you can come. And he, I said, when are you coming? I thought he was coming like in two weeks. He said, I'll be there tomorrow morning. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, what? <laughs> and he's like, oh, and by the way, can I stay with you? Oh, it's like, goodness. yeah. So they really <laughs> caught me off guard. So he came. I picked him up from the airport. And, you know, I knew Tom, but I, I didn't really know Tom really at all that well. I had obviously watched his diving you know, he had very, he was very scruffy, had bent legs. He had torn his tricep three or four times. And I, although the world had been sort of amazed by Tom, I, I just had always seen certain things in his technique that I, I just didn't feel like it was ever going to get him where he needed to go if he was really thinking about medals. And really by that stage, right, remember he had already won a world championship at 15. So who was I? I was just being critical. <laughs> and so he came. He'd already he'd already won an Olympic bronze by that time too, hadn't he? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So here was I going, you know, just, yeah. So he sat at the kitchen, I remember, and he said, okay, if by chance you were to become my coach and would you consider it, what do you think of my diving and what would you change about it? And I was like, oh. Wow. Okay. Well, while we're on that subject, I said, here's all the things. There were a list of about six things that I said, if he wanted to be Olympic gold medalist, Olympic champion, there were several things he needed to change. And obviously he, he's written a book about it and some of that stuff's not kind, but it is what it is. So one of them was you got to get in better shape. You got to be able to spin faster. You got to straighten out your legs. You got to make your dives easier et cetera, et cetera. And so he was like, whoa, okay, that was tough. <laughs> and I said, and secondly, Tom, I'm not, I'm not moving to London. I have no reason to, to leave Houston. I love Houston. I'm going to retire here. This is my home. And plus the weather in London's grumpy and I love Texas. <laughs> so he said, okay. So we went and trained for a couple of weeks. And honestly, Laura, he from the first day, I was just blown away. His can-do attitude, his fun, it was so fun. And as her coach, you never imagine that you're ever going to have the chance, the opportunity to coach such an incredible diver. Um, you know, I'd had Vera and Yulia Nasty, and I was like, okay, I'm pretty satisfied with my career. And college thing had gone really, really well, and uh, I was okay. I was happy in myself. And then he came along and I was just like, oh my God, he's got me. And so he said, okay, I'm going to go back to London, but can I come back in a month? <laughs> and I was like, oh my Lord. <laughs> so I said, sure, you can come back in a month. And that's then I went to the UK for this conference. I looked at the pool. I remember now I had gotten that mixed up. It was Tom came to visit me first, which you were right about. Then I went to London to go look at the venue because they were then trying to reel me in. I met with Alexi. He said, how much is it going to take to move you? And I said, I just came up with a random number. And he said, okay, we'll pay that. And I was like, what? Well, he kind of called the bluff, huh? <laughs> yeah. 
And so then I came back to Houston and Tom said, I'm coming back again. And that was November. And then I had another two weeks with him. And then they said, okay, Jane, what's your decision? You you have to make a decision. And I was like, I didn't have anybody at Houston that really sort of, yeah, it was tough. You know, when, when coaches lose such great athletes, you, you sort of lose your, your, momentum and you lose your energy because you're like, okay, well. What now, right? Yeah, it was tough. It was so tough. And I'm sure Kenny, as you know, probably experienced that when you retired. That excitement of coaching becomes something easy because you don't even, it's it's like a pleasure to wake up every morning and you're running to the pool because you can't wait to coach those kids. So that's how it felt when I in that short moment of coaching Tom. And I was like, you know what? I've done everything I can possibly do in Houston. There's, there's nothing else. And changing programs, that's not really what I want to do because then that's just about the money. And this was not anything about the money because I, I screwed it up later on when I arrived in London and realized how expensive it was. I didn't, oh, no. ask, I didn't <laughs> ask for enough money. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah you know that's what us crazy coaches do you make a decision and you're like oh no wait a minute I didn't ask for enough <laughs> um yeah it was a really tough thing Laura I made that decision to move to London my family was living in just outside of London my dad was ill I had decided that I probably should leave Houston. I was leaving my Russian girls behind. And that was probably the really toughest thing for me was everything that I had loved and was comfortable with, I was leaving. But there was this excitement about a new opportunity and to coach Tom and move to London. And I didn't know what that was going to be about, but I loved the pool. The, the dry land was the best in the world. And so I made this decision and within three weeks, I had already, I was packing my bags and I was gone. Wow. So fast. Yeah, I was. And I don't know if you've ever done this in in your short life, but I'm quite spontaneous. So I sort of do things and then I uh, sort of reflect later and go, okay, was that really? But I never looked back. I I decided to do it. And then I said I was never going to have any regrets. And of course, I miss I miss Houston and I miss all the people and all the families that have ever been through my 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 club and my college um, system. But yeah, but I never looked back and that was a tough decision. But it was it was, as you know, here we are. Right. Been a pretty cool ride. Well, one of, one of the been things cool. <laughs> one of the things you told me when you started coaching Tom, like you mentioned, his work ethic is the best. Like he's just fun to be around. But you mentioned that him juggling all these things outside the pool was a big challenge because after London, I mean, he was always popular because he was this cute little guy on the scene and he was really amazing, you know, and won a bronze medal in London, you know, in his hometown and, or home country and everything. And um, he was quite the celebrity already at such a young age. So I, I guess what was that part like and how did you did you have to manage that with him? Like, how did you guys kind of figure that aspect out? Because I'm sure a lot of coaches have athletes, maybe not, you know, as the celebrity type like Tom, but that do a lot of things outside of just their sport. And it, it can take a toll on what you're doing in the pool. Yeah. And I, I 
that's a loaded question because he is a very intricate, complex, popular, famous person. And, you know, Yuli had won five medals and as she always said, well, you know, to Tom, well, who are you? You haven't won anything yet. <laughs> um, and there was never that sort of celebrity environment and and certainly much easier to manage and navigate as a coach because there's not a lot of outside things that are challenging you. And I remember uh, Vera saying to me that when you take on this job, Jane, it's going to be like nothing you've ever done because there's another part of this that you've never had to deal with ever, even with us as gold medalists. And she was absolutely right. And, you know, he had come out then because he was living, he was staying in Houston with me when he decided to come out as gay. And, and so he escaped that, I think, to try to sort of not hide himself because he wasn't doing that. But protect but to himself, escape, sort of. Yes, yeah. to protect himself. And thank you. That's, that's actually the word. And so when he arrived at my place the second time to the reason why he was coming was to protect himself and, and I could shelter him and nobody would know where he was. And then he was like, well, this is what I'm doing and this is who I am. And I was like, whoa, okay, holy mackerel. <laughs> and he was young too, right? How old was he at that time? Yeah, so he's 27 now. He'll be 28 in May. So that was already, what, eight years ago. He, so he was 20. Yeah. Um, so he's a young boy. And um, I understood it. It was, I, I was like, you know, you must do what you must do. You must do what makes you happy. And and this is another part of who he is and, and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, there, there obviously were lots of challenges, Laura, and it would be remiss of me not to mention all of those. But... If I, if I look at the eight-year journey, and it has had lots of challenges, uh, injury challenges, fame challenges, dealing with Tom's partner who now, and over the course of our journey, him and I, we've had to work out our own journey, and, and that's had its struggles, and we are in, in an incredible place now. But I think initially that caused problems just because all of us were very insecure about where did we sort of sit in this little bubble? Because I was trying to be the coach and I was quite controlling. And then he was a young man who obviously had a fiance and he was going back and forth to the States and Lance was coming back and forth. And plus he was famous. So there was all of these red carpet things he had to do. And even for Lance, and I never tried to speak for Lance, because I think it's only fair that he tell his story. But he would probably agree that him and I were sort of thrown into it, and then we had to navigate this, and we were all just sort of not really sure how we were going to go. And so there were some mistakes we made along the way. But I can honestly say that once we were able to work out, okay, I'm the coach, I take care of you when you're the diver, and then, hey, Jane, what happens outside the pool, that's actually not your business. And I mean that in a very positive way. He didn't say it like that. He didn't say it's not your business. He did say, like, that's my private life. And I've got to try to navigate that part. You can help me and give me advice. But 
I'm on my own and I've got to navigate that. And so I had to really work hard to not tell him what to do. And, hey, Tom, can you not go to that? Because I really need you to recover. So that took us probably until Rhea. So you you kind of had to trust him to start figuring it out and to, to realize what he needed to do, like when to recover, when he could go, like that kind of thing, I'm guessing. Yeah, that was tough, eh, Laura, because I think, I mean, I, I'm happy to admit that as an elite coach, we become quite controlling because we want to we want to try to control all of it. Sure. We want to try to control the mindset, the physicality, the emotion, the private, because all of it contributes to whether you're successful or not. And then I had to really just let some of it go. And that, that obviously after Rio, and he was a lot older and more mature. So it was okay. I was like, okay, uh, well, I'm going to let you try to do it your way. Because I love that he's involved in the planning. It's not like Jane plans and I do what she says. Tom is very much a planner and he guides me. Oh, I, I like that, Jane, but could we maybe do that instead? And so there was always a back and forth, give and take. Sometimes I didn't agree with his strategy, but he wanted to do it. So I let him do it. And then I had to let him fail. And then he did the same with me, where he would be like, okay, well, I'll try it that way. And then when it didn't work, he was like, okay, so maybe you're ready to <laughs> to listen to me. And so, but I think I've emerged as a better person, a better coach. I listen better. And really because of him, because of him, I can be a better listener now and I can allow them to guide me in their planning. And that takes a lot. It's, it's many oh, years of, yeah. Uh, it's a learning it's curve. Yeah. <laughs> well, let, let's talk about Rio because you're there with the Great Britain team and Tom and Daniel Goodfellow, they win a bronze medal in synchro. Tom, I mean, blows away the competition in the prelims. I think it was like an Olympic record score at the time. And then the next day he comes in and it's like surreal and he is a completely different diver and ends up 18th in the semis and doesn't even make it to five. Yeah. And I remember yeah. seeing you guys, I was on the pool deck there with media and I remember seeing you guys after that. And it was just like, I, it was just so surreal. I mean, how did you guys process that and walk through that? Because I know he probably as a celebrity already and as a previous medalist, like he probably had the weight of so much on his shoulders too. And so many expectations, like walk me through that, those moments, that time. Ooh, yeah. And as you know, you know, when you don't do what you're expected to do and, and what we expected to do, well, that absolute feeling of just what a disaster, how did this happen? Who's to blame? Those are all the things that you start immediately. You know, what did we do wrong? Where did we go wrong? And I honestly can tell you that it took us a good year of finger pointing. No, it wasn't you. It was me. No, it was you. It wasn't me. Oh, it was so-and-so because she didn't do the right thing or sports psychologist didn't do the right thing or and look, that's everybody's immediate reaction when you don't live up to the expectation and you and you fail miserably because for us, that was uh, the long and short of it, right, is that was a failing on, on all of our parts. 
But initially, when you go through that experience, there's disbelief, then there comes anger, and then there comes reflection. It's like the five stages of grief, right? Yeah. Grief. Yeah. yeah. It it felt like we had lost something, and, and that's a great way to put it, um, uh, because you do grieve. You grieve the loss of the gold medal, the loss of, and I'm sure Michaela Schifrin, and it's a great example, I can look at that scenario and I go, oh my God, I feel, I know exactly how she feels. Oh my God, that feeling. So you go through all of those stages and then it's only really a long time after where he could finally go, well, actually, (laughs) I'm also to blame. (laughs) Because I didn't do what I should have done. I didn't do A, B, C. I did E, F, and G. And that affected the A, B, Cs of my performance. And then I could vary, because I do this quite easily. I always am introspective and I always go, oh my God, I don't even think about him until afterwards. So what could I have changed? And and here's something that really was very obvious to me. Our relationship was so young at that point, we had only been working together two years, that I felt like we didn't even really know each other that well and trust each other and have faith in each other. So I didn't have a really good view of what actually went wrong other than to go, oh my God, did we train too much? Did we... What could I have done different? Maybe I should have screamed at him when this was going downhill. But, oh, my God, no, I didn't know him well enough. So if I'd screamed at him, would that have made it worse? So you go through all of these things. And as, you know, that cliche about your greatest failures become your greatest success, I don't think you can actually ever say that and live it unless you've actually been through it. Because I think for Tom and I, I probably, if he'd won a gold medal at that point, I would have come back to Houston and that would have been my journey with Tom. But things work out the way they're supposed to work out, right? Mm -hmm. We didn't do well. Yes, we won the bronze, but that was completely overshadowed by the fact that we were supposed to win the gold medal. But what I learned, there are a few things that I learned. Tom, we're not going to talk about it because what happened in those two years leading up to Rio, and I don't know if you did this when you won the gold we talk too much about winning the gold medal. We're going to win the gold medal. And I think that puts so much pressure and expectation on you that when you don't deliver, it's like you go below the surface. It's like the iceberg below the water. And so we decided, I don't want to hear a word about, don't let me hear you in any interview talk about a gold medal. I don't want to hear about it. Do not say a single word. If somebody asks you, you're going to do the best that you can. And I'm going to prepare the best that I can. And you do not put yourself out there. You and I can believe it. And we can, we actually, him and I didn't even talk about it. But I said, it's not that we didn't believe it. We were going to do a much more, let's just take it inside. And let's think about what did we do wrong? And then we are never going to repeat those same mistakes. So one would be, We had an escape strategy. And when I coached with the Russian teams, we always had an escape strategy. So what is escape strategy? That is, you come in and you do the synchro 
and then you get out of the village and you go somewhere else. And there's lots of reasons for that, especially for men's tower. Men's tower is three weeks later. By the time they arrive for their event, they're all cooked. It's over. Yeah. So now it's survival of the fittest. So you got to have a good escape strategy if you're talking platform. We didn't do that in Rio. Um, he didn't like the pool we were picking for the escape strategy. He wanted to be close to his family. So there were several things that didn't, we, we, we just didn't make those good decisions. And, and I think ultimately in the end that cost us. And, and so when we talked about Tokyo, I said to him, basically in a nutshell, we're going to do it the way we need to do it. And that is you're going out on an escape strategy. Whether you want to or not, you don't have a choice. And by that time, he'd already bought into that, right? Because he, he knew that that was part of something that we needed to be successful at. And that was going to help us. So he did that and he did that gladly. Um, so when he came back to the village, he was very fresh. And he had escaped all the hoopla around who won medals, who didn't. Uh, he had escaped the little bit of that cabin fever, being with the same athletes for three weeks. Those are all the reasons why you do those things. But we started planning for Tokyo a minimum of two years out, a day-to-day -day schedule of exactly what we're going to do, what we're going to eat, where are we going to go, what diving. I, he said, Jen, I want to know exactly what training I'm going to be doing. What do you want me to do? How many days am I having off? What's my strength schedule? When am I going to go to weights? When am I going to recover? When am I going to see my family? So we did that a minute by minute, literally. Uh, what food you're going to take to the pool? Who's going to be there to make sure you have your recovery drinks? What are we doing with uh, the leggings, the skins to do compression? What are we doing with the ice bath? I was not going to let any stone be unturned. You planned that much detail two years out? Correct. How long did that take you to plan? I just planned it with Tom, my strength coach, my physio, our psychologist. She was very involved in all of that. Because Tom is a planner and he loves to know exactly what he's going to do. Oh, I'm right there with you. I've just never, I've never heard that much detail in a plan, which, which, is great, yeah. but like how how long did it take you to organize all of that to have this two year plan? A few months. It took us two or three months of don't forget we knew the schedule, right? Because it's you don't have to know an Olympic schedule. It's the same thing every four years. So we knew the synchro was going to be early, right after the women's. So we, we knew the time, we knew the day. And then, of course, with the postponement for, from COVID, we could even go back and then redo the details. So it was, yeah, it was extremely extensive. And he forced me to really think through every little ounce of the detail. And Did you leave room, like some wiggle room to like, if you're not feeling it or it needs to change, were you just bound to this routine or were you okay with like changing it as you went? Here's the thing that I always reminded him of is life doesn't work in schedules. <laughs> life does not go exactly to schedule. So maybe the event gets postponed. Maybe you're up there getting ready to do front four and a half and they blow the whistle just as you're running because something's fallen in the pool. I said, Tom, 
I'm going to schedule this out. But the only thing that I want you always to remember is that things can change. And your things is you get very stuck in, in routine. And I am not a routine person, but I'm going to do this because you're, it, it's going to help you. I said, but I want you to understand that I deal in realism. And in realism, like you just said, things can change. And I need you to be ready for anything that comes along. Expect the unexpected. Mm -hmm. So we can put the schedule together and we can try to do our best to follow it. But an example would be this, Laura. We never scheduled for Tom to ever leave the pool because there was it was too risky to get on a bus go all the way back to the village. Maybe you miss the bus. Maybe the bus breaks down on the way back. And now we've missed this window of training before the final. So these sorts of things were planned. You're not not leaving. Are you going to do recovery? Your lunch will all be packed. The nutritionist is going to work with you on what you're going to eat so you can get the best out of your recovery. We practiced what he was going to eat months before. So in practice, we would do sessions exactly like the final day. So we would have the semi-final in the morning, the final in the afternoon. And he would bring his lunch to the pool and we would do it, we would do a list in the morning exactly how we were gonna run the, the final day. And we did that in synchro and we did that in individual. So for all those people that think that athletes just show up, no, they don't just show up. There is and look this is something you got to understand. It doesn't guarantee success, but it, all it does is give you the best chance to be the best you can be. Right. So how mentally did you guys walk into Tokyo? I mean, obviously, I think you probably felt prepared. You had a little glitch with COVID, but it sounds like you guys were able to navigate it really well. Did any of that anxiety from Rio come back? Were, were there any fears associated with that? Or were you guys really able to kind of put it behind you and this was a new competition? Yeah, I I think um, that's a, such a great question because I was worried, me personally, and really I, I think Tom may have been because he did say to me sort of after the prelim and after the semi, okay, like I started out a bit rough, but I got where I needed to go. So, you know, he said, I just wanted to be sure that I wasn't going to be in the same situation. So, yeah, these things always sort of maybe creep in your mind, but I felt like it was just a different time, a different place. There were no crowds, no families. And Tom had been injured. He had a meniscus repair a few weeks before. He had COVID in February, didn't dive for six weeks. So there were many things that we had already dealt with. And I was quite calm because I I just know Tom and actually rest, um, as we learned from Rio, actually may work in our favor, not detrimental to us. Even though he was out of the pool, he was, you know, Laura, I actually took a a leaf out of your book. And Tom will tell you, I talked with him a lot about this. I remember when you broke your foot and uh, I remember watching you, all your sessions, because I was obviously out there training with my girls. But I said to Tom, and I did this with all my athletes, you're going to go up to 10 meter. And you're going to do all your mental imagery up there. And so for every day, you're going to be up on 10 meter every other day because that's how we usually train. And I said, that's how Laura 
I always told him, that's how Laura won the gold medal. <laughs> she was doing all that mental imagery in the pool, out of the pool. So we, I actually remember that to this day, Laura, and we, we used that because I remember seeing you doing that mental work. So a lot of that I remembered from the days of seeing you. And so I would make all of my athletes that were injured go up to 10 meter and do the full routine, including go to five, do your whole mental workup, go to seven, do your whole mental workup, and then get on 10. So Tom was doing that all through the the knee meniscus repair. And anytime he had an injury, well, and I think there's there's something to that when you're especially not I mean, mental work obviously is very powerful, but especially when you can be up on the boards feeling like you are in the place you're supposed to be. It really does have a way of keeping your body and your mind like still in the game. You know, it's it's absolutely amazing. I love that you employed that with all of them. That's awesome. Yeah. And especially I'm sure you could say the same about yourself, but Tom was a very mental person. So he didn't need a lot of repetitions leading up for the last five or six years. Um, and that was something I just had to trust him on that is, you know, just Jane, you're going to get the best out of me if you ask me to do two or three reps. And then I know that I have to do my best in those reps. Now, granted, you know, he's also a much more skilled diver. <laughs> Not all divers can do that. Right. But in, you know, in the latter of his career, the mental imagery became really a big thing. And, and we relied on that so much for Tokyo. So, yeah, kudos to you because I watched you do that. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yeah, I was I remember feeling pretty dumb at moments just pretending to dive up on the 10 meter. But it was all I could do. And I was like, if this is all I can do, I got to do it 100 percent. I got to be all in. And Kenny really I mean, he led the charge in that. He's so good at thinking outside the box. And, and we got creative and it, it came into play many other times when I had injuries and stuff. So, yeah, the mind is a powerful thing. And, and people say, you know, sports are like 90 percent mental, but nobody trains that way. So it's really refreshing to see other people starting to take those cues and starting to implement that. And obviously we can see how powerful it is. Look at your team and the success you've had. Yeah. And, and you know, we all know that diving visualization and, and mental preparedness. And I said that about Rio going back to that. Tom, if you compare Rio to Tokyo, in Rio, Tom was 95% physically ready. We did not do enough mental work in those two years. We didn't do enough because everybody said to me, oh, Jane, just make sure he's physically ready. The rest, he can do the rest. But the brain is like a muscle, right? You have to, you have to keep working it. You still have to keep practicing. You still have to build its toughness, its uh, longevity, whatever. And I would say in Tokyo, we were 90% mentally prepared and probably 60% physically. So there's the power of the mind, Laura, right there. Wow. I love that. So what was it like finally seeing him win a gold in the synchro with Maddie Lee and then going on to get the bronze? Like, What were those moments like for you guys? I mean, I think for him, it was a relief. I never felt relief because I, I never felt that kind of pressure. I, you know, I, I think for him, carrying a, a nation on his shoulders is always a much bigger, yeah, it's a, a bigger challenge. So for him, it was relief so people could get off his case. But also, 
I think he always believed he could do it. And then the realization that, oh my God, I've actually done it. And the disbelief, the disbelief that he actually did it. Because like he always says in all his interviews since then, I, I think I believed I could do it. And his husband always told me, Jane, well, you and I believe Tom can do it. But if Tom doesn't believe he can do it, he will never do it. And he was absolutely right. So I think, yeah, it was relief. It was pure joy. It was just the moment of us enjoying that moment. And, and Matty was just unbelievable. I'm going to be quite honest and tell you that I know I should be really happy, but I'm a coach. And <laughs> I thought Tom actually could win the gold individual because he was like, so he was doing so well. And I was like, Tom, third, what? No. Because <laughs> I, I really believed at that stage going into the fourth round of the individual, I'm like, oh my God, I think we could take this. And then he missed his fourth dive. And then he sort of, I think he, he realized he was far enough ahead that he just, if he just hung in there, he could at least be on the podium. But yeah, you know, I, I always say to him, I said, I know, I know you're so happy and I'm over the moon and I'm, I, I couldn't be more happy, Tom, but what the hell? We could have won the gold medal. <laughs> oh, always coaching, Jane, always coaching. I know, I know. I always feel bad telling him that because uh, he's like, man, it's never good enough for her. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're a good coach. Well, I have to ask you one more question for the coaches, especially listening out there. When you have a phenomenal diver like Tom, who is also a celebrity, who is also somewhat demanding of your attention just because of the nature of what's going on. But then you have all these other divers you're also coaching. How do you balance that and make sure these other divers or athletes don't feel inferior or like they're not as important or they're not getting your attention? Yeah, that is such an awesome question for coaches. And you have to sort of have a realistic and honest answer to that. And that is this, that when you have athletes that are elite, elite, creme de la creme, 1% at the very top, I don't believe we live in a world of fairness. And, you know, that's something that always bothered me because it wasn't that I wasn't being fair. It's just what happens is all of your energy and focus clearly becomes a part of those athletes that are actually the medal contenders because so much goes in, as you heard me talk about a few hours, uh, you know, an hour earlier about the detail that goes into winning a gold medal and, and somebody who's that detail. So what, what I did, and I had five athletes I was managing, four of them made the Olympics in Tokyo and one didn't. And I always feel like for a coach, it's very difficult to share the energy. So, so here's what I would say, because that was always a challenge for me. And I, I tried to do the best I could, but I, I can honestly say that my girls that I coached probably felt a little bit like I didn't always give them the kind of 100% energy that, that I might have given Tom. And I like to be honest, and, and I, those are faults that all of us have to recognize. And so what I would say is you can only do the best that you can do. You can only give as much energy as you can possibly give. And hopefully everybody feels 
that you're giving them the same. I certainly cared about them the same. I certainly wrote up their workouts with true intensity and ability to be for them to be their best. But it didn't probably always show when I was coaching. Like sometimes I might have been a little bit irritated or, or snap at them um, because I was tired. I, I didn't always have the energy when you're dealing with five athletes to give them my very best all the time. So maybe at times, and certainly maybe Tom even felt that way. He's probably like, oh my God, here I am killing myself. And she's over there worrying about what are the girls because she can't see her spot. So maybe it works together. Uh, I would say that all of them would probably say that I was good at some things and then I wasn't very good at others. And for me, I would always like to work on those things that I wasn't doing my best at. And sometimes I'm not sure that I would be able to give more. I, I don't know. But certainly for coaches out there that are listening, you're never going to make everybody happy. And all you can do is try to do your best and try to take time out for each individual athlete, which I did. I used to go have lunch with each one of them individually. I would catch up with them at least every week, maybe every two weeks. We'd sit and talk about how you're doing. And then I was very perceptive about their moods and what was affecting them in the pool and give them the best advice I could give them. And here's the beautiful thing about coaching. I actually always reached out to my athletes to give me advice about things that I was struggling with. So say, for example, I was having a bad day because I missed my family or I missed having something else other than diving. And I had such amazing athletes, all five of them, and they would hug me and say, Jane, I'm here for you and we're here for you. And just, you know, when you need a break or you need somebody to talk to, I'm here for you. And, oh, my God, I would cry when they would say that because usually the coach is the one giving all of themselves in a personal way. So I would say to those coaches out there, you're not going to always be your best, but just do the best that you can possibly do and then connect with your athletes and let them know that you're not perfect. You're like every other human being and I make mistakes and I'm not always right and I can do things better. Yeah, it's a humbling factor, um, but I think that's something all of us need to take into consideration. Thank you for sharing that. I love that answer. What is next for you? Because you're in like rest mode now. We got to have dinner with all of our friends a few weeks ago. That was really fun. Um, what's next on your agenda? Well, um, Laura, as you know, we, we lost a very important person in our program, my assistant coach, David Jenkins, who literally was the love of our lives. He balanced me. He got me. I worked with David for seven years mentoring him, and he really became the most outstanding coach. And he obviously coached a couple of our Olympians. So leaving Dive London on a sabbatical and taking a rest was really allowing him the opportunity to take the program to his wherever he wanted to go with it over the course of the year while I was, you know, sunbathing and drinking margaritas. <laughs> And unfortunately, he died in a, a terrible accident and in October. So we never got to really see his true potential. But nonetheless, you know, he, he, he was the most amazing fellow. And because that's happened, I just feel this urgent 
um, need and, and maybe it could be my own need to return to London and yeah, choked up. I'm sorry, Jane. And we, and I, I do want to take a minute to just send all our condolences to you, to your entire, to Dave's team, to, to your, y'all's team, to Dave's family. Um, it, yes, any diving is a small world and it's just tragic when we lose anyone. And yes, we're, we're so sorry. And, Always let us know if there's anything the world can come together to to do for all of you guys. We're we're here to help. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Laura. Thank you. But anyway, so with Paris only two and a half years away, I'm actually gonna return to London in September because I, I think we have a potential. Um I'm gonna put it out there, you know, we, we have metal potential in London and I don't know what Tom's gonna do. I'm hopeful that he comes back because I love him. I miss him. (laughs) And he's such great energy and positivity for our program. But having said that, if he doesn't, we all completely understand that. We get it. And, you know, we are extremely happy for him to carry on his his life the way he he sees fit. Um, So I'm going to return to London. I'm going to finish up Paris the way um, we need to because these kids need me and they need some stability with David gone and just some encouragement and, you know, it affects kids in in quite a profound way. But I look forward to that, Laura. I, I really, really do. It's a different journey, but a journey nonetheless. And um, we're going to give it our very best and we're going to attack it and try to go for some medals. And then after that, Laura, I don't know. Um, we'll see. You know, the world's my oyster. <laughs> it most certainly <laughs> is, as you, as you have covered the whole world uh, in just this podcast since we've been talking. So, Jane, we wish you all the best. Thank you so much for spending such amazing quality time with us. We will be cheering you on through Paris for sure. Hey, and Laura, I want to send a huge shout out and so much love to you. And no matter where I am in the world, you're always supporting me. You're always cheering us on. And that's the beautiful thing about you. You embody sportsmanship, positivity, and encouragement. And um, I I hope we get to see you on the deck more. I hope Mm -hmm. that you're a figure because um, you're such a great spirit. And thank you so much for for allowing me to learn learn some things from you. You're going to make me cry. You're not supposed to make me cry on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests. And it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.